surpass penetrating and perfect are is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truth of the tathagata's words Good morning and good afternoon. Uh, today we're going to continue uh, going through merging of difference and unity line by line. We went about halfway last week and so we'll continue. Uh, so the Sandokai, written in the 8th century by Shito. And we chant that on Tuesday evenings, and it's chanted in many Zen centers around the world. So I can't, I didn't make a mark where we actually finished off last time, so I may be repeating a line or two, but it doesn't matter. But I may not be either, but I'm not missing a line. I made sure I wasn't going to miss a line. So uh, we'll start with darkness is a word for merging upper and lower. Light is an expression for distinguishing pure and defiled. Darkness is a word for merging upper and lower. I seem to particularly like this line. In a way, it kind of it captures a way to function in the world. If we can always hold the unity of all things, which is darkness, is in in this text darkness represents the unity of all things when everything's dark you don't distinguish one thing from another so darkness is a word for merging upper and lower so it's interesting that the that the word word is there too to remind us that unity and emptiness and darkness and the ultimate and the absolute these are just words that we use, we don't want to get attached to them as concepts, uh, but they are very helpful to us, but we don't get attached to us. So darkness is a word, but is a word that helps us uh, bring the difference between upper and lower to bring, bring them together. And uh, yesterday, my seven-year-old granddaughter was given um, a costume, Hermione Granger from, a Harry, from Harry Potter, she was given a costume and part of the costume was a plastic wand, which unfortunately was not a solid plastic wand, it was an extremely thin, hollow plastic wand. And so by this morning it had broken in half. <laughs> and so I went into the house this morning and she was weeping on the floor and uh, her parents and I, luckily, we didn't collapse and weep on the floor as well. And one way you could see that the reason that we didn't all collapse and weep on the floor is that as adults, we were able to see from the side of a sort of a bigger perspective, from the side of darkness, we could see that this plastic wand was just an imputation. It was just a piece of plastic called Hermione Granger's wand. And Hermione Granger herself is an invention of J.K. Rowling. I mean, the whole thing was just an invention. Um, 
we could see this wand in a much bigger picture of the child's life as well. It was one little element in this child's life. But for her at that moment, it was everything. And this broken wand was just extremely painful for her. I saw her yesterday so excited to have her special outfit on. Um, and I could see at the same time, I was happy for her, but I could see that this happiness was completely conditional. And there you were, by the next morning, <laughs> she was devastated. But even though as, as parents and as a grandparent, uh, we didn't collapse on the floor weeping because we could come from this side of darkness, the side of unity, we didn't uh, say to her, oh, for goodness sake, it's just a plastic piece of plastic, get over it. We, we didn't do that. Instead, we kind of got together and had an extremely earnest conversation. Should we use super glue? Should we use a hot glue gun? Would it be a good idea to put a chopstick maybe inside to strengthen the whole plastic wand? Then shall we bind it with something or will that make it not look like a wand anymore? And we had very earnest conversation in the kitchen about what to do about this plastic wand while the child was weeping on the floor saying, I only got it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> she was completely caught in the light. <laughs> but we, we as adults were navigating between the light and the dark. So when we hold the light and the dark together, we can be very skillful in this world. So the next lines <clears throat> are the four gross elements return to their own natures like a baby taking to its mother. Fire heats, wind moves, water wets, earth is solid. So the four gross elements return to their own natures like a baby taking to its mother. It's a very sort of sweet line in the middle of of this text. Um, it's not that often that images like this are used, but every now and then they're there. And, and uh, I find this a very tender image of a baby taking to its mother, uh, a sense of the, the natural way in which a, a child reaches for the mother. Could be the father, could be a caregiver, but just to use a word, mother, as a stand-in for anybody who's going to be the primary caregiver of a child. The child just reaches to them very naturally. So even though the mother and the child are different, they have this way of, of coming together with each other. There's a, a natural relationship between the mother and the child. So here it's saying the four gross elements, fire, earth, wind and water um, return to their own natures. They, ha they have a role, they have a place, they have a position in the universe. The elements have a position in the universe. Even though everything's interconnected, everything also holds its own Dharma position. Uh, so these four gross elements return to their own natures. So, we're unified and we still return to our particular position. Like we were just trying to return the wand to its original 
position, which was to be Hermione Granger's wand for this little girl. We were trying to fix it so it could go back to that, be that for her. Uh, the four gross elements also are a way of describing the body. We have these, we have these four elements in ourselves. We've got the heat of our body, um, the wind is our breath, the water is our blood, blood, sweat and tears, and the earth, it's like our bones, our hair, our nails. And I think there was something in here I was going to read. Maybe not, maybe I'll keep that for a little while. So our body is a good example of the merging of difference immunity because we've got all these different organs in our body and it's one body with all different organs and we, we more or less need them all. We can get by without some of them. And I was thinking a little about how uh, often people do sort of lose their appendix or get their tonsils out or lose a limb. And you know you can you can lose a bit of the body here and there, but if we were to keep on forgetting about the individual kind of dharma position of each parts of our body, and we were to fail to care for them, then the body eventually wouldn't wouldn't work. The body really each of the elements of the body, each aspect of the body needs to be cared for. So we care for the whole body recognizing it's got all these different parts to it and we care for each part and we respect the role of each part of the body. So then going on, oh, well, actually also this image of the body is good for us to think about the whole world in the same way, of course, that um, we can lose individual species, we can lose individual sort of landscapes like mangroves somewhere might get destroyed. But if we, if we keep on neglecting the form side, if we keep on neglecting the individual dharma position of things, eventually the system starts to break down. It was subtly already breaking down, but it will definitely break down, which is, of course, what is happening globally right now with the loss of biodiversity and and so on. So continuing on, eye and form, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste. Thus in all things, the leaves spread from the root. So you know, this is you know, from the Heart Sutra, eye and form, ear and sound, these pairings all go, they go together. If we didn't have forms, we wouldn't see. If there weren't sounds, we couldn't hear. They work, work together. And it's easier to see it from the side of, if there weren't things to see, our eyes wouldn't, if there weren't objects, our eyes couldn't see. If there weren't things to hear, our ears wouldn't be able to hear. 
and if there wasn't taste, we wouldn't taste. It's sort of easier to see it that way. But I have been reflecting a lot recently on the other way around that do the forms and the sounds of the world need us to see them? It's just a question that I'm contemplating at the moment. To, is it true in some kind of way that all the manifestations of the world require us to witness them? It's certainly a, a concept that you see in indigenous cultures, the importance of witnessing the world. So I've been, I've been sitting with that a lot. With our minds, we create the world. Sometimes I think it's nice for us to just sit with something and not try and solve it. So that's where I'm at with this line right now, this idea with our minds, we create the world, just, uh, just being with it and seeing what happens over time. So then it goes on to say, thus in all things, the leaves spread from the root, which is a, again, another beautiful symbol of uh, the leaves. You know, there's thousands of leaves on a tree. There's one trunk, but on, you know, coming with the nourishment coming up from the roots and then all the individual leaves, beautiful, all the different leaves. And another image we have in some of our koans is you have the lotus bud, which is just this sort of single bud, and then it pops open into all these different petals. I love that image of the lotus bud opening up into different petals. It's, it's the merging of difference and unity right there in that, in that image. And I'm just remembering just at this moment about leaves on a tree, uh, um, I guess you'd say it's a joke from Monty Python where they, they show a, a, an animation. Some of you may be familiar with the animations used in the old Monty Python videos. It's a beautiful tree and a leaf just starts to fall down and it's making a little ah as it's falling down. And then all of the other leaves start going, no, 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 no. They all start crying and then they all go ah and they all fall at once together. <laughs> It's just such a, I don't know, I just love that image, just respecting the, each of those leaves having a life, you know, they have an important life there on that tree. One of their cousins fell to the ground, they all wept, and then they all fell to the ground together. <laughs> Should try and find it somehow. Uh, <clears throat> And noble and base are only manners of speaking. Well, I think we've, we've kind of talked about that quite a lot. Noble and base are only manners of speaking. We have to function that way in terms of um, whether something is wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's beneficial or not, whether it's uh, critical or not critical, any, any kind of pairing that you like, but they're just manners of speaking. It's not actually so. What, what might be uh, like a poisonous snake, for example, is a poisonous snake to us, but to the snake, it's not a poisonous snake. It's just a snake doing its life. Um, 
It's just a manner of speaking that we say these things. I think that's very evident too across cultures where something for one culture is beautiful and in another culture it's terrible. What might be edible in one culture is not edible in another. What, uh, what's seen as something beautiful and fond to care for in one culture is not in another. They're just manners of speaking. And if we can keep this in mind all the time, and we just kind of move through the world more, you know, smoothly. We can see it's all manners of speaking. We can see that that plastic wand is just a, an imputation and not get so upset. And in not getting upset, we're then free to be useful. Just like my granddaughter's parents were freed up to be useful, to fix her wand rather than collapsing on the floor crying. They could see it differently. They could see both sides at once. So we want to be like that throughout our, you know, every moment of the day and in, the, and in our dreams to be that way. So then the next line is, right in light, there is darkness, but don't confront it as darkness. Right in darkness, there is light, but don't see it as light. Right in light, there is darkness, but don't confront it as darkness. Again, using the wand metaphor, parents understood that it was just a plastic wand, just a, not a plastic wand, it was just a piece of plastic. Parents understood that, but they responded to it. They didn't confront it as darkness, they responded to it in the light because that's what was required. And the same with the other way around. Right in light, there is dark, right in darkness, there is light, but don't see it as light. So we remember at the same time as we respond to things as individual things, we don't forget the unified field. So we're always just walking along that middle path, walking down that mountain ridge line, tilting a little bit one way or the other as needed, but not stepping right off down one side or the other. Uh, and then it says, um, I think I should put my glasses on. <laughs> I'm looking for the line about forward and backward steps. Maybe it's coming up further up here. Oh yeah, light and dark are relative to one another, like forward and backward steps. I like this image of forward and backward steps. If, if you think of walking, one foot is forward and one is back, but less than a second later, the other foot is forward and the other one is back. But the concept of forward and backward is, is relative to the, other, to the other foot. You need the two for, for there to be walking and you need the two for there to be forward and backward steps. So if we can see everything that way as, as in relationship, its meaning, its meaning becomes apparent through its relationship. 
You can't have a forward without a backward. You can't have uh, light without dark and so on. And so, so also just even form and emptiness require each other. There's no meaning in emptiness or there's no meaning in form without the other. Objects and space require each other. You can't have objects without non-objects, without space around them. I had an experience once of, uh, you know, sometimes when you've got a street with trees that meet in the middle, so all the, all the sunlight is dappled on the road. Uh, I was riding, it was in Santa Cruz, riding my bike underneath dappled light. And as I rode through, the dappled light landed on my body. And I, in that moment, I had the sense that the light required my body to become visible. You know, that as the light was traveling through the trees, it didn't, it wasn't dappled until it hit something, until it hit the asphalt on the road, or in this instance, and, until I rode underneath it and then it hit my skin. And then the, then the dappled light became apparent. The light required, kind of required the form for it to come into, uh, to, to, to appear to us. So all the time we can see that everything is in relationship, like forward and backward steps. All things have their function. It is a matter of use in the appropriate situation. Again, this is a sense of the Dharma, everything holding a Dharma position. And I'll read a little bit from Shohaku Okamura's Living by Vow. This is on the line, uh, well, this is the line, each thing has its, its own place and function, which is to do with um, the line, all things have their function. It is a matter of use in an appropriate situation. All things have their function. Everything and everybody has a unique function. We all have different capabilities, talents, characteristics, personalities, bodies and languages. All things have a function appropriate to some situation. The word in Japanese for appropriate situation is show, meaning place. Each one of us has to find the best place to use this body and mind. This unique body and mind exists as an intersection of difference and unity. That is the place where we can create our own unique way of life. This is our practice. Our practice doesn't mean we have to make ourselves into a particular shape. We have a responsibility to accept this unique body and mind and put it to use. To fulfill the potential of this body and mind, we have to find an appropriate situation and embrace it as our life, as our own work. And just this, we have to find an appropriate situation I just kind of like that we have all found this a particular appropriate situation right now. <laughs> and that many of us come to the Dharma because we're looking for 
we're looking for a way to use our unique bodies beneficially. And we find Sangha so that we can cultivate that capacity, not to change who we are, but to reveal who we are. And then the next two lines, uh, phenomena exist like box and cover joining, principle accords like arrow points meeting. So I'll read a little bit from here too. Uh, oh, well, first this, I'll say a few words about phenomena exist like box and cover joining. Um, many years ago, I was a woodworker and I would sometimes make little wooden boxes with a wooden lid. And it was such a beautiful thing to have the lid fit perfectly in the box. It would make this sort of tiny sound as you lifted it off, just a slight sound of friction, but not a lot, just the teeniest, just a little felt. You could feel the slight feeling of lifting the lid off the wooden box. So it's like this perfect pairing between form and emptiness. And phenomena exist in relation to each other, like box and cover joining. Nothing is disposable, nothing should be wasted, nothing should be ignored. Everything has its place and has its relationship like a box and cover joining. So I'll read out the next bit on principal accords like arrow points meaning. Arrow points meeting is a reference to a classic Chinese story about two archery masters. One was the teacher and the other his excellent disciple. When the student felt that their skill had surpassed their teachers, they challenged him. When they took aim at each other and shot, the arrows met in mid-air and fell to the ground. Both lived because they had equal skill. Chateau says that phenomena and principle, difference and unity should meet like the arrows. Our practice is to actualize this relationship between difference and unity in each situation. For example, we cannot live by ourselves. We are part of a community and yet no matter where I live, I am I. I cannot be another person and yet to be a member of a community, I have to transcend I am I and see the situation of the whole community. We have a point of view as an individual and also as a member of the Sangha. We also have another I who sees the situation from both perspectives. The viewpoint of an individual person is in this case an example of difference. It's very natural that I have an opinion different from other people. We shouldn't negate our individual opinions but as a member of a community, we have to see things as a whole. The most de desirable condition is when both ways of seeing meet each other, like arrows shot by the masters. I like that line. The most desirable condition is when both ways of seeing meet each other, like the arrows shot by the masters. If we can perceive a situation like that, we can be really peaceful. It doesn't happen very often because it's really difficult. Our way of life is always like arrows missing each other. That's why we have pain in our social lives. There is no way another person or a God can make these arrows meet. 
Our practice is to find the appropriate situation in which this person as an individual and this person as a member of the Sangha can meet like box and cover joining, like two arrows in midair. All right, so let's see. Uh, hearing the words, you should understand the source. Don't make up standards on your own. So hearing the words, you should understand the source. Uh, in a way, is one of these mysterious lines because understanding the source is not really something that we can do. But we can trust somehow, we can trust there is great wisdom in the teachings and that the understanding is more like a felt thing in our bodies, not something that we can articulate or even understand with our mind. But we can feel something about the source. And because of that, we don't make up standards on our own. This is not to say that we don't examine the teachings and explore them for ourselves, but to, to be very careful, to be very careful about making up standards on our own, to, to come up with uh, an alternative viewpoint altogether is, is a little bit risky. I'd be very careful about doing that myself. I find that just respecting the ancestors, respecting all those wisdom traditions that have gone before me and really trying to um, incorporate them in my life feels like the most skillful thing. But to, to still engage my intellect, not, not to accept them blindly, but to be quite humble about my own capacity to come up with anything different or better. <laughs> That feels like a bit of a crazy thing to even consider. But of course, we, we can express it in our own unique way, which is why there are many different teachers and many different practitioners and many different traditions, why we have many different um, schools of Buddhism and all different faiths, because they're all just unique expressions of the same wisdom teachings or very similar wisdom teachings. If you don't understand the path as it meets your eyes, how can you know the way as you walk? I think of this as um, really inviting us to, to feel the teachings for ourselves and to feel them, experience them in this present moment, just right now with our eyes right now, with our ears right now. to wake up right now. If we don't engage with the present uh, wholeheartedly, how can we know the ways we walk? We miss out on, on the very walking itself. Progress is not a matter of far or near, 
but if you are confused, mountains and rivers block the way. Progress is not a matter of far or near. We speak about this a lot, particularly when we talk about uh, Buddha nature teachings, that um, progress is not a matter of moving from here to any other place or of transcending above the ordinary world. It's not a matter of far or near. But if we're confused about that, then ordinary things block the way. Just instead of seeing the gift in the ordinary things right in front of us, they become barriers. When something goes wrong, instead of engaging with that thing that's gone wrong, just in a conventional sense, and seeing how we can navigate it, we get distressed about it. Sometimes we act a bit like the seven-year-old girl whose wand broke, rather than acting like the parents who take it as an opportunity to see if they can repair the wand. And even if they can't repair it, it's demonstrating love for the child that they made an effort. So there's an opportunity uh, for something good to come from whatever is arising in front of us. We don't have to let the mountains and rivers block the way. And then uh, this text ends with this powerful line, I humbly say to those who study the mystery, don't waste time. Such a powerful line to end with. Uh, and uh, I was a little surprised on how Shohaku Okamura responds to this line. I'll read it out. It's just a sentence or two. He says here, I humbly say to those who study the mystery, don't waste time, no matter how hard we practice. If our practice is not based on true reality, we are wasting our time. Pretty, pretty strong words. If our practice is not based on true reality, we are wasting our time. We don't know what true reality is, but if our practice is not based on it, we're wasting our time. I tend to think of this line more in the, uh, I have up until now, but now I'll incorporate this way as well. I've tended to think about it from just the perspective of, although time is a construct, we also have this life that begins and ends. In a, it appears to begin and end. Um, our energy doesn't disappear, it just transforms, but we have a life that begins and ends. And uh, to use it, use it well, use each day well, use each moment well. Don't waste time by being uh, distracted by thoughts just rolling around in the head, basically. <laughs> I'd say that's our biggest distraction. Maybe it's the only distraction is being preoccupied with thoughts rolling around in our head that stem from a sense of an individual self. Thoughts that create a sense of self and other, being distracted by them. We don't need to hate them. We don't even have to get rid of them. But if we're aware of them, then they're not a distraction. 
we can just be aware of them, be curious about them, engage with them now. That's not uh, that's not a distraction, but being caught by them and just not being able to see properly with our eyes or hear properly with our ears because we're preoccupied with thoughts about ourselves or others. We could say that's wasting time. So there's this strong line at the end. And he says it humbly too. I humbly say to those who study the mystery, don't waste time. It's a real call to practice. All right, I think I'll end there. Uh, we have time for maybe a, a couple of questions or comments.